Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, it's great to see you guys um, this morning. I'm just going to move this over. Most of you know I like to move around a little bit, so that will um, be a little bit easier for me. Great. Um, I'm going to put out a picture up on the screen to get things started. Um, who can tell me who this is? Pinocchio and Geppetto. <laughs> you know, it's close enough. It's close enough. And the cat. Anyone know the cat's name? I don't. So, but, hmm? No. <laughs> okay, we'll just call it cats. It's all right. It's not important. <laughs> I'm sure most of you probably um, know the the basics of the story of Pinocchio already, and uh, I've come across Pinocchio in the past. Pinocchio is obviously a wooden puppet, uh, and he's been carved by the master Italian carver Geppetto, and. Um, once Geppetto's finished carving him, not long after this scene, as he's there with the strings, playing with him and getting all excited about him, there's this moment where he looks up at the stars, and he wishes, and he wishes upon a star, you'll probably know the song, and then this blue fairy comes down and gives Pinocchio the gift, a fantastic gift. It's a gift that Pinocchio can come alive. But if you know the story, then you'll know that that's not enough for him, is it? What's the one thing that Pinocchio wants more than anything else? To be a real boy. He doesn't want to be this wooden puppet that can move and talk and be alive. He wants to be a real boy. It's the one thing that he longs for. Now, as far as I'm aware, none of you are a wooden puppet. But, despite that, I think there is sometimes more that we can relate to about Pinocchio than we might think. You know, it can be so easy to go through life and do all of the things that people expect us to do. We, we wake up in the morning, we make our breakfast, we go to work, we come home, we watch TV, recycle and repeat. We treat people well. We try to be nice. We try to be a good person. But if we just do those things, all the normal things that people expect us to do, if we just live our lives trying to be good people and do the right thing and find approval, I think if we're honest, often at the end of each day, we're still left searching for something more. You know, just like Pinocchio longs not just to be alive, but to be a real boy. So we can often long not just to, to be alive, but to actually, we have this desire within us for real life. This desire within us for this larger, authentic life that is filled with meaning and purpose. Now, when I was, um, when I was younger, before I, I really started to, to follow Jesus, the kind of, this kind of feeling that we're talking about, this longing for something more, described me perfectly. You know, on the surface of things, I had... Everything that, you know, most people would want. I had good friends. I um, was successful in school and in college and things. I um, got my kind of need for approval, my ego kind of stroked by my kind of, my, the way that people praise me in music. But despite that, deep down, I felt like something was missing. What I had seemed strangely empty and meaningless, and I was often left wondering, what's the point? 
the only thing that was really driving me in life was not a sense of purpose. But actually what drove me in life was really just a enjoyment of people's approval and being accepted and liked. And what formed my decisions and why I did things and what went on was simply that. And that was great when I was with people and there were people there to stroke my ego and tell me how much they liked me and how good I was at different things. But when I was on my own and that was missing, the reality was that I was often depressed. The reality was that I I struggled with suicidal thoughts. The reality was that I was a mess. You know, on the surface of things, I seemed like I was alive. Some people would even say that I was successful. But despite that, there was this longing within me. This longing within me, and I didn't know how to satisfy. This longing within me for a life that was authentic and real and filled with meaning and purpose. And you know, when I I started to, to really follow Jesus... You know, it was fantastic to know that all of the wrong things that I'd done and the mistakes that I'd made had been forgiven. It was fantastic to to know that I had an eternity to look forward to in, in heaven. But the one, probably the biggest thing which changed everything for me, the biggest difference in my life was going from this place where feeling like life was utterly meaningless to suddenly being excited about being alive. Excited about knowing God. Excited about living for God. Excited about the fact that in Jesus I'd not just found life, but I'd found a reason to live. And what I discovered in Jesus is that his intention was not just to save me from something, but it was to save me for something. To be saved for the plan and the purpose that God had for me. Now my my prayer for you this morning, if you don't know Jesus yet, is that you would find him today. And that in finding him, you would not only receive his forgiveness, which is great, but actually you would find your ultimate purpose. And you would become excited about the fact that God has given you a life. And it's a life that has a meaning. And if you are already a Christian today, that's fantastic. But I know that each and every one of us, there are times when we can lose sight of the purpose that we have. There are times when we can get distracted and we can get caught up in the mundane things of life that don't really matter. And life can become that slog of wake up, make breakfast, go to work, try and sort the family out, try and get the jobs done, watch some TV, crash and burn and go back to bed again. Rinse and repeat. And my prayer for you today is that God would come and he would reveal something more of the purpose that he has for you. And that you will see life differently because of it. Now we've been going through a series recently called Inspiring Influence. And and John began the series by talking about how each and every one of us have opportunities to be an inspiring influence in every day of our lives. And then we we continued by, by talking about how the foundation that gives us the confidence and the boldness and the courage to be able to make the most of those opportunities, whatever circumstances we're going through, is the, the truth that, that whatever we are going through, God is with us. And today I want to talk about how if we are going to be people 
who are an inspiring influence in the lives of others. Within the, the communities that we, that we live and that we work and we do different things and we spend our time, then we have to realize that God has a purpose for each and every one of you exactly where you are. To help us to start think um, through what this looks like, we're, we're going to take some time to look at the life of a lady in the Bible called Esther. Um, now Esther um, is a, a Jewish orphan, and she's raised by her older cousin Mordecai. And she's uh, alive um, in, a, in a time when the, the Jewish people are, are under the reign of a man called King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes reigned in Persia from about 485 BC to 465 BC, and his kingdom was a pretty big kingdom. It stretched from India all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. That's a big old empire to have, isn't it? And for one reason or another, I'm not going to go into it today, there comes this time when the king is choosing a new wife. And out of thousands of beautiful young virgins, Esther is the one that is chosen to become the queen. And he declares his wedding day, they have this national holiday and this great celebration. And then at this point, he has no idea that, that Esther is, is a Jew. She's not told anybody, um, and she's, she's kept that kind of things kind of quiet. And a while later, the king hires a, a man called Haman. And, and he hires Haman to basically help him run the kingdom, to be the prime minister and his chief advisor, and, and to take care of all the practical things so he doesn't have to worry about it. And we get a bit of insight into Haman's character and what he's like when you discover that the very first commandment that he decides he's going to make is that when he's walking down the street, anybody who passes him has to bow down and kneel at his feet and worship him. That's the first commandment that he makes. That's the kind of ego trip that Haman was on. You know, he was so addicted to power and the the, the sense of of kind of uh, people kind of praising him that that was the first thing that he decided to do. And people were so scared of him in the position that he had that everyone did it. Everyone bowed down to him when he passed. That is except for one man, Esther's cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai would not bow down and worship Haman because Mordecai was a Jew. And so the only person he would bow to, the only person that he would worship, is the one true God. And this hacked off Haman like you would not believe. He was infuriated. And so he decides that he's going to make his point and make an example of Mordecai and he's going to have him killed. And then as he's going about putting the plans in place to get all of this sorted, he discovers that Mordecai is a Jew and he thinks, I've got an even better idea. I'm going to really make an example of him. We're not just going to kill Mordecai. That won't achieve enough. We're going to kill all of the Jewish people across the entire kingdom of Xerxes. And you've got to remember just how big this kingdom is. Haman's plan is not just to to wipe out the Jews in the city where he lives in Susa. It's not just to wipe out the Jews in the nation of Persia. His plan is to wipe out the Jews in the entire Persian empire that stretches from India to the Mediterranean Sea. You know, what we're talking about here is mass genocide on an incredible scale that would have resulted in the annihilation of the entire Jewish race. Haman gets the ball rolling on his plan, and this is what we read in Esther chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. The 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
It's pretty horrific stuff, isn't it? And when Mordecai hears about this plot, he goes into mourning, he, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and, and he, he, he decides that the only thing that he can do is to try to persuade Esther that she is in a position where she can intervene and go and speak to the king and plead the case of the Jews. That she can save the lives of the Jews throughout the entire empire. So, he goes to the gates of the palace, but because he's wearing sackcloth and ashes, they won't let him in. So he just stays at the gates there, wailing and shouting until he gets Esther's attention. Esther can't miss the fact that he's there, so, so she sends an attendant down to go and see him and, and ask him what it is that it's all about. And Mordecai gives the attendant this message explaining everything and pleading with Esther to go to the king Xerxes and petition him for the lives of the Jews. You'd think that would be a pretty straightforward thing to do, wouldn't you? For a wife to go and have a chat to their husband. It's not really a big deal. The thing was that while Esther might be King Xerxes' wife, while she might be the queen, he still had a harem of other women. And Esther only got to go and see the king when he asked for it, when he summoned her. And so Esther writes back to Mordecai saying, you don't understand, the king has not summoned me for over 30 days. It's been a month since the king wanted to see my face. Everything's changed. And she goes on and says, and in case you've forgotten Mordecai, it's written in the law, if I show up in the throne room to talk to him uninvited, and he doesn't reach out with his scepter to say, I can come in, then I'll be put to death. As excuses go, that's a pretty good one. But Mordecai doesn't let Esther get off that easy. He says this in Esther chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now Mordecai is saying to his younger cousin, Esther, perhaps this is why you have risen from being an orphan to being the queen. God has orchestrated all of this. He has put you in the position that you are in, in order that you may be able to act to save the rest of the Jews. Mordecai is saying to Esther, it is no accident that you are in this position of influence. You have not been brought to to the palace just so that you can enjoy what it is to be queen and having um, beautiful dresses and expensive perfume. God designed you and made you the most beautiful woman in the kingdom so that the king would choose you. And he brought you to this point and made you queen because he had a purpose for you. Use the position and the influence that God has given you to intercede with the king on behalf of the Jewish people. God created and designed Esther and he put her in the position that she was in, not just because he thought that she'd enjoy being queen, thought that it would suit her, but because he had something deeper and more meaningful and full of purpose that he wanted her to do. God had a purpose for her in her position. You know, and in just the same way, God has created and he has designed you for a divine purpose. 
You are unique in your giftings. Unique in your talents and in your abilities. Unique in your personality. And just as you are unique, God has a unique purpose for you. That only you can do. There is a purpose that God has for you that no one else can do. It is a God-given niche that you were made for. I don't know if that's something that fits comfortably with you or not. But the truth is that you are not on the bench. You are a key player in God's plan. You know, just like God designed and created and placed a Jewish orphan girl in a specific strategic spot, you have been placed where you are for such a time as this. Now, this truth is something that we see again and again throughout the Bible. A great example of it is um, with the, the prophet Jeremiah. When God says to him in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. It's incredible, isn't it? That God knew Jeremiah before he was born. And that he formed him and designed him all for a specific purpose. And you might think, well, that's great. That's true for Jeremiah and maybe for these odd different people that God has this great big plan for. But it doesn't mean it's necessarily true for me. But we find it again in the New Testament in a letter that Paul writes to all of the followers of Jesus in Ephesus. And this isn't a statement made just then to one or two people. This is a statement which is made to everyone. And he writes in Ephesians 2 verse 10, For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is saying that you and I, every single one of us, have been designed and created by God. We have been designed and created for a purpose. For the good works that God has prepared for us even before we were born. Isn't that amazing? You are God's handiwork. God took care in his design of you. Your gifts and abilities and talents are no accident. God thought about you in advance. He thought about you before you were born. And he planned a specific purpose for you and he made you with the skills and the talents and the abilities for the task. You know, if you look at the chairs that you're you're sat on, it's pretty clear that someone didn't just make something accidentally and then sit back and say, well, what is it that we're going to use this for then? No, no, someone had a purpose in mind as to what it was they were wanting to achieve and they designed something to fulfill that purpose. And in the same way, you were not made accidentally. With no purpose. God didn't make you accidentally and then afterwards sit back and think, well, what can I make them useful for? No, God had a purpose in mind for you before you were born. And he designed you and formed you and created you with all of the right specific personality and gifts and abilities and talents to fulfill that purpose perfectly. I'm not an accident. And you are not 
an accident. God designed you. And there are things that you can do because of who you are and because of where God has placed you that no one else can. And when we start to grasp this truth and to discover the purpose that God has for us and what it is that he's made us for, nothing can be more exciting. And I don't know what the purpose is that God has designed you for. Uh, It's going to be different for every single one of you. I don't know what it is that is prepared in advance for you. Because each and every one of us are unique. No, but God has a purpose for your life. And even though your purpose will look different from mine and from the person next to you, a part of your purpose in one way or another will be for you to be an inspiring influence in your relationships, in your conversations, with your words, with your actions, with your attitude. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to make radical changes and go and throw your career away and, and get a different job or whatever it is. Move to outer Africa as a missionary. But rather to look for the opportunities that surround you and to have the courage to make the most of them. One of the things that we, we see with Esther is that sometimes the purpose God has for us can be scary. And it can involve taking a stand. You know, can you imagine the fear that, that Esther must have felt when Mordecai said to her, go and talk to the king. It uninvited, just go into the throne room and start talking to the king. Tell him about what's going on with the Jews. Ask him to help us. You know, most people didn't know she was a Jew. She'd kept it secret. She kept it quiet and she could have stayed quiet. She could have kept it to herself and, and thought, well, if I hide this, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be safe. You know, maybe you feel like that sometimes. Maybe you feel like that sometimes that it's easier to keep your head down. Easier to try and hide away than to risk how people might react. It can be so easy to allow fear to paralyze us. And hold us back from the purpose that God has for us. And while we we wait for a time where it seems safe and it seems easy. You know, but once Esther accepts the fact that God has a purpose for her, we see she takes a stand that involves extraordinary courage and bravery. And she makes the decision that she will approach the king even though it means taking the risk that she could be put to death. This is how Esther responds to Mordecai in chapter 4, verse 16. She says, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now Esther recognises God's purpose for her. And she's open-eyed to the risks that are involved with it. And then she does two things to help prepare herself for what it is that she's got to do. One of the things that I think is, is great about Esther's response is that even though it's the, the purpose that she has is unique for her, even though it's only her who can do it, she knows that she doesn't have to try and do it alone. That's great. She asks for help. She gets all of the Jews to pray and to fast for her. 
And you know, even though you have an individual, unique calling and purpose on your life, with individual and unique gifts and talents and, and everything else that comes with it, that God has for you and for you alone, that nobody else can possibly do, you never have to try and do it by yourself. God never intends for any one of us to be alone. You know, when we start to follow Jesus, he intends for us to become part of a new church family. A family that will stand with us and help us to discover God's purpose for us and then help us and pray for us and support us to fulfill that purpose as we go forwards. That's one of the reasons why small groups are so important. A chance where you can share and be open and explore what it is that God has for you and stand with one another and pray for one another and encourage one another. But Esther recognizes that as much as she needs the help and support of other people around her, even more than that, she needs God's help. And so she takes time out to spend with God. She doesn't think, well, God's called me, he's given me a purpose, he's uniquely gifted me, so I'm just going to go off and do it all on my own. She knows that even though God has already called her and uniquely gifted her and has a purpose for her, that actually she still needs him to go before her and prepare the way. She still needs him to empower her and to give her what it is that she needs as she goes forwards. However big or however small it may be, the purpose that God has designed for you, he will also empower you for. Every step of the way, by his Holy Spirit. You never have to try and achieve your purpose in life alone. Always take the time to ask for help. To ask other people for help, but even more than that, to ask God for help. Now, I, um, I'm not going to try and tell you the whole story of Esther this morning, um, but it's only ten chapters long. So, I want to encourage you to go and read it for yourself. It's not a long book. It's easy to, to read. Um, but I, what I will say is that Esther's simple act of courage in recognition of the purpose that God had for her proved to be the tipping point that led to the salvation of the entire Jewish race. And I think one of the things which is amazing is as you, you look at your life and all that you, you've done and you, you know, sometimes it can be easy to think that how am I going to make any difference? The, the, you know, what is it that I have done that has really made a difference? But you know, it's amazing how often it is simply a single act of courage that proves to be the tipping point for extraordinary change. And you may never even see it coming. There was a, a single act of courage in the life of a lady called Rosa Parks, which has become famous. Some of you will already know about it. It was the, the 1st of December 1955 in America. And Rosa Parks is a 42-year-old African-American woman. And she decided that she wouldn't give up her seat on a bus to a white man. She had no idea in that moment that what she was about to do would become an international symbol for the civil rights movement in America. She had no idea. She got up. She got ready for work. She got on the bus. She sat down, just like she always did. An ordinary day. And then when the bus driver came along and said to her that she had to give up a seat, she made the decision that she was going to risk the consequences, whatever may happen, and she said no. And that single act of courage that on its own seems so insignificant proved to be the tipping point for extraordinary change. You know, God has a purpose for your life. 
And I can guarantee you that you will find opportunities in your circumstances to fulfill that purpose. If you're looking for those opportunities. You know, it may be that what you do sometimes seems insignificant and you have no idea how God may be at work. But it may well be at a tipping point for change. I remember when I was um, a teenager, there was a girl that I knew. Um, and I didn't know her very well, um, but I counted her as a friend. And it wasn't someone I saw regularly, just once in a while. But there was one time when I saw her and, and she, she was looking upset. And so I went and I talked to her and I just gave her a hug. Um, nothing significant, nothing special. Most of you know that you know, I give hugs fairly freely. Um, I didn't think anything of it. The next day she came and told me that she really struggled to feel cared for and to feel loved and that no one ever really gave her hugs and that that one simple act that was so insignificant for me of giving her a hug had proved to be the tipping point that changed everything. Now I was lucky because I got to hear about the difference that it made. But so often you may never get to see just how significant the different things that you do are. At least not this side of heaven. But if you go through life understanding that you have been created and designed for a purpose, that God has prepared in advance good works for you to do, and you go through with your eyes open looking for those opportunities, then I am confident that you will have a far bigger impact than you ever know. Um, during um, one of the recent Alpha sessions that we had, I heard a story about a man that I'd never come across before, and I just thought it'd be great to share it with you. It's the story of a man called um, Sir Nicholas Winton. Uh, he died last July, at aged 106. Um, but in December 1938, he was a young stockbroker on holiday in Prague. And while he was there, he saw uh, the, the Nazi occupation, and he realised that the Jewish families were in jeopardy. So in the space of of three weeks while he was over there, thousands um, of Jewish parents came to be interviewed by him. And in the space of nine months, he arranged for 669 Jewish children who would otherwise have been killed in the Holocaust to be transported to this country. He managed to persuade the the Home Secretary here to allow them into Britain. He found families for them to, to, to live with. He forged the permits that got them over the borders and out of Czechoslovakia. Um, He did everything that needed to be done to save them. When the Second World War broke out, he became a fighter pilot, and incredibly, he absolutely forgot about what he'd done. He never even told his wife about it. And then 50 years later, in 1988, his wife came across a suitcase in the attic, and she opened it, and inside were all these pictures and letters relating to each of the children that he'd saved. Esther Ranson, um, the, the host of a TV show at the time called That's Life, um, heard about it, and she tracked down some of the children, and she invited them to the studio without telling um, Sir Nicholas Winton. And Sir Nicholas Winton was then invited to the studio um, with no idea as to why it was that they wanted him to be there. And within the studio, he was seated next to a woman called Vera Gissing, who was one of the children um, that he had saved. And he had, and she had um, no idea uh, at this point who it was who had, had rescued her. You know, while we may never know the impact of our lives this side of heaven, I am convinced that when we are with God, there will be a moment when he says, stand up, turn around, and you will be amazed 
at the impact that you have had. You know, God has a unique purpose for each and every one of you here today. It is a purpose that he designed you for and created you for. It is a purpose that he saved you for. And when Jesus came and and died in your place, so that the wrong things that you have done could be forgiven, so that you could have a fresh start, so that you could know relationship with God, he did not do all of that simply to save you from something. He did it to save you for something. So that you can fulfill your God-given purpose in this life and be an inspiring influence to the people around you in a way that has a lasting impact beyond anything that you can imagine. We're going to go into communion in a minute, but before we do, I want to encourage you at the end of your life, you don't want to look back and feel like you've been following somebody else's script. You don't want to look back and feel like you just fitted in with what people expected. Or that you spent your life just trying to get through and keep all the balls in the air and get all the jobs done. You want to look back and know that you followed God's promptings that were unique to you. That you fulfilled something of the purpose that you were made for. That your life was authentic and real and full of meaning. So this morning, you know, if you are already a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to use this as an opportunity to come before God and to be honest with him. And honest with yourself about what it is that you've been living for. What it is that your life has has revolved around. And it might be a moment when God wants to stir your heart and get you excited about the purpose that he has for you. And start prompting you to begin to make different changes. And to look around at the opportunities that surround you. Or it might be that this is a beautiful moment where actually, as you, as you come before God and you're honest with him, that, that he, he, by his spirit, he just comes alongside you and you have this moment where he says, stand up. And he, he reminds you of the different lives that you've touched and the impact that you've had. And it's just a sound where you can experience God coming alongside you and saying, well done. Well done. Or it may be that if you're honest with yourself, you already know that you've, you've had a sense of God's calling on your life, a sense of God's purpose for your life in the past, and that actually you've just kept putting it off. Waiting for a time when it might seem more convenient and a little less scary. And if that's the case, then I want to encourage you as you spend that time with God, just being honest with him. I want to encourage you. That God is wanting to say to you, he has put you in the place you are in. He has given you the gifts that you have for such a time as this. God has a plan and a purpose for you for this moment. Don't put it off. Don't miss out on the adventure that he has for you. And if you have never given your life to Jesus before, you've never received his forgiveness and you've never been given the, the opportunity of a new start filled with purpose... then I want to encourage you that this is something which is available to you today.
Something which is available to everyone. It's a gift which is on offer. A gift of forgiveness. A gift of relationship with God. A gift of, of life in its fullness. And God is just waiting for you to respond and to accept it. And if that's something that you would like to do today, then please don't miss this opportunity. We'll have a team of guys at the front here and they would love to talk to you and pray with you afterwards. I so say we're going to go into a community, but just before we do, I'm just going to ask Nikki to come and share. She just wants to share the testimony of, of God's goodness. Hi. Um, I hate talking in a mic. I can sing in one, but don't get me to talk in one. Um, I just wanted to encourage you, really, about God having prepared things in advance for you to do. Because when I was a very little girl... My mum used to drive us down to uh, Penzance from Sordash to see my gran, who lives in St Just. And we would sing all the way there and all the way back. And we would sing around and we would sing harmonies and we would play clapping games. And so that kind of fostered in me a love of singing and a love of music. And so when I was three, um, I went to stay with an uncle who played the guitar. And when I was also three... I went to visit my Uncle Jerry who had a flute and I decided that I wanted to learn both of those instruments and I have. And so at school I learned to play the recorder and then I moved on to the flute and then I uh, and learned, taught myself actually to play the guitar and then had guitar lessons. Um, picked up the bass because it was a bit cooler when I was a teenager. Um, but it wasn't until I became a Christian when I was 13, 14 and um, as a result of that, I ended up being asked to play the flute in the Baptist church, um, where I became a Christian. And the first time I played the flute for church, at the end of that service, I knew, I knew that that's why God had put that gifting in me. I knew it was for that. And even though I didn't really get involved in worship until after I was married on a regular basis... Um, and certainly didn't lead worship until we came to the church here. That was something that God had prepared in advance for me to do, and I knew that he had. And when we planted the church at Penzance, I was heavily involved in the worship, and I assumed that actually I would end up being the worship leader there because there was me and a couple of teenagers, so it was kind of a default thing rather than a particular calling. But God, when I prayed about it and I asked God, he said no. And he didn't just say, no. He said, not only am I not going to let you do that, but I'm not going to let you worship at all. And so he called me out of worship for about three years, and I couldn't pick up a guitar. I used to sing in church, but I wasn't allowed to do anything, not even like growth group, so, you know, prayer meeting kind of worship, nothing. And that was the hardest, hardest thing that God had ever asked me to do. Because music is just so deeply rooted in me. And um, I was having prayer one day because I was just distraught. I'd grieving so hard for the loss of this gift. And uh, he, he, somebody who in the Houston church who was a prophet said to me, it's because of the children. And as soon as she said that, I was like, right. And I thought it was my children. So I was like, oh, my goodness, you know. And as soon as that, I was fine, okay. That's why. I have a reason. That's okay. And within weeks, I actually got involved in the crash in church, and I ended up running the crash for the, I don't know how many years we were at Penzance, but certainly for all of that time. And as a result of running the crash, 
I then went on in my personal life to go back into nursery, which is what I was qualified to do. And I'd always thought I'd never go back and do it because I was bored. I'd done it already. And yet I just remember getting to this point where I realised that actually working in nursery was just so the right job for me. Everything about me suits that environment. So I could sing with the children, I can be an idiot, I can be creative, I can be artistic, I can be just... Every aspect of my personality just fits that job. And as time moved on through that career, um, I've ended up now, and as you know, because you said the struggle with me to get there, I'm now a qualified teacher. And at the beginning of that process, God took me back and reminded me that when I was a little girl and I went to school, I used to go home and sit for hours practicing my handwriting so that when I grew up, I could be a teacher. And I had forgotten that that was my dream. When I left school, I didn't have the confidence to do that. That's how I ended up going into nursery because I didn't think I was clever. I didn't think I had anything to offer. And so I've done it late in life, in my kind of late 30s, early 40s. But here I am. I'm in my first job as a a newly qualified teacher. And God knew and he's had that plan and that purpose and I don't know what the impact is going to be and actually I don't want to because I think it would make me big-headed to be honest so don't (laughs) say anything okay um but you know because I battle that all the time anyway um but yeah it's it's be encouraged and the other thing I would say to you to do is don't wait to be asked because I waited and I missed out on a lot of blessing because I waited, because God told me what the purpose was. God told me that I was to be involved in worship. He didn't tell anybody else, he told me. And it took me to go and say, look, I really feel. And in terms of leading worship, actually I was in physical pain. I was feeling physical pain when I went to see John, and I just said, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm, I'm in agony. And it was just such a deep heart pain. And at that point, God opened the door, and I've started to lead worship more regularly. But that's what it took so don't sit back on your laurels you will know what your giftings are if you're honest and don't think that satan is is trying to big you up he's not be confident in in what god has put in you to do because if it's right he will create the opportunity but you have to have the courage to step out and say i think that's me